Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constan from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as the principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health, diabetes outcomes, and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. The opinions and recommendations in this podcast are those of the presenters and not those of Cardio and its sponsors, and are not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hello, I am Dr. Joshua Joseph, an endocrinologist, assistant professor of medicine at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, and a member of Cardio's Team Best Practices. I'm excited to be here today with Dr. Robin Ortiz and Dr. Lisa Ramirez to discuss adverse childhood experiences. In this podcast, we will explore the role of adverse childhood experiences in cardiovascular disease and overall health and share resources on this topic for primary care providers. Dr. Ortiz is an assistant professor in the Departments of Pediatrics and Population Health at the New York University Grossman School of Medicine. She is a physician scientist with expertise in health equity over the life course. Dr. Ramirez is a clinical child and adolescent psychologist at the Metro Health System in Cleveland, Ohio, and an associate professor of psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. She is also the associate director of pediatric psychology and director of community and behavioral health for Metro Health School Health Program. Welcome to you both. I am so happy to have you here to discuss this important topic. Thank you so much for having us. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So let's start with you, Dr. Ortiz. We're going to start with New York first. Some in our listener community may have heard the term adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, while others may be less familiar. What are these adverse childhood experiences and why are they important? Thank you so much, Dr. Joseph, for bringing this topic to light because, you know, if nothing else, it'd be really helpful for our listeners to appreciate the importance of adverse childhood experiences or, as I'll refer to them briefly, ACEs. The term adverse childhood experiences emerged out of a seminal paper published by Dr. Vincent Folletti and colleagues in 1998. This was through a partnership between the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Kaiser Permanente. It was a study that enrolled 17,000 adults and asked them to report retrospectively or in their past if they had experienced seven adversities or traumas in childhood. They responded with a simple yes or no about questions such as psychological, physical, or sexual abuse history, if they had experienced or witnessed violence against their mother, or living in a household with challenges like a caregiver struggling with substance use or mental illness, or if they'd been separated from a caregiver such as through divorce. These were termed the adverse childhood experiences, or they are often referred to as ACEs. It was found first and foremost that 70% of the population had experienced at least one adverse childhood experience. Further, and really prominently, there was a finding that there was an association between having reported ACEs exposure and an increased odds of having current morbidities like ischemic heart disease, but also cancer, chronic lung disease, liver disease, and other conditions. It was also observed that the greater the number of adverse childhood experiences reported, sometimes now referred to as the adverse childhood experience score, 
the greater the odds of adult disease even after adjusting for age, sex, race, and educational attainment. In some research, the specific types of adverse childhood experiences may differ or have been broadened from what I described, but are generally referred to this group of exposures studied by Dr. Folletti. And decades of work since the seminal study by Dr. Folletti and colleagues has shown that adverse childhood experiences are associated with life course morbidity and mortality across numerous other outcomes and measures. Thank you for that, Dr. Ortiz. And I I think the statistic that really stood out to me in there was 70% of individuals have had at least one adverse childhood experience. That is a large majority of our population, over 200 million Americans. Very important. Dr. Ramirez, let's go to you next. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has shown that up to 80% of health is driven by the social determinants of health. What are these social determinants of health and what is the intersection with the adverse childhood experiences? Yeah, that's a great question. So social determinants of health, sometimes also called social drivers of health or even SDOH, are a really important way of understanding what impacts our overall health. So most people think, right, that health is due to your genetics, right, and the medical care that you receive. But actually, only about 10% of your health status is due to genetics and another 10% to the quality of the medical or clinical or health care that you receive. But that leaves another 80% of your health status that's affected by factors like where you're born, live, learn, work, play, and age. So let's think about economic stability, things like employment and income, neighborhood and physical environment that are things like quality of housing, transportation, walkability, safety, food, access in general, or access to healthy options, education, including literacy, language, early childhood, and community and social context, which are things like support systems, social and community integration and engagement and discrimination. The social determinants of health are similar to adverse childhood experiences in that there is more and more evidence that stress and your environment can have long-term effects on your physical and mental health, even beginning very early in childhood. I do want to highlight that adverse childhood experiences don't occur in isolation and are part of a child's overall developmental experience. And so to truly understand the impact of social determinants of health and adverse childhood experiences, we need to look at the risk that's conferred, but also at the overall picture, including any buffering and protective factors that may be present. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Dr. Ramirez. And, you know, one of the things that I think about in your first comment there, um, you said social determinants of health, and then you said drivers of health. When I am with community members and I use the term determinants of health, it makes it sound like something that is set in stone, right? It can't be changed. And so I like that turn on it, calling it social drivers of health, because when I think of a driver, that's something that can be changed. You can have one driver today and another driver tomorrow, right? You can change that. And so I I love that. And I know that in cardio, we've done a lot of work to address social determinants of health. So that's really key in that intersection, then back with the adverse childhood experiences. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Ramirez. Dr. Ortiz, uh, you mentioned earlier that having a high adverse childhood experience score may be associated with various conditions, including cardiovascular disease. Could you speak to the association with cardiovascular disease? Absolutely. In fact, in that original study and many since, there's an uh, over twofold increased odds of cardiovascular 
risk outcomes associated with adverse childhood experiences. In fact, there's such a strong association between adverse childhood experiences and both cardiovascular disease risk and outcomes that it's led the Centers for Disease Control to project that the reduction of ACEs or adverse childhood experiences could prevent up to 1.9 million cases of heart disease, as well as associated morbidities or risk factors. Uh, For example, the potential to prevent 2.5 million cases of obesity or overweight status. The literature has demonstrated that adverse childhood experiences are also associated with the pathophysiological underpinnings of cardiovascular disease and diabetes. As Dr. Ramirez uh, referred to, like a dysregulated stress response and markers of metabolic processes. And there are also lifestyle factors that are associated with adverse childhood experiences that could pose risk for cardiovascular disease, like smoking, sedentary lifestyles, or poor sleep. That is all compelling uh, information there, Dr. Ortiz. But, But what does it really mean for implications in the study, prevention and treatment of cardiovascular disease? Yeah, this is an important point that all of this knowledge goes to say uh, we want to do something about the outcomes. And to your point, uh, adverse childhood experiences are not destiny. And so we can look, for example, to the American Heart Association's recent Life's Essential Eight Guidelines for Cardiovascular Health. These guidelines identified eight essential metrics of health known to be associated with decreased life course morbidity and mortality. And they include factors such as attaining adequate sleep, exercise, nutrition that's healthful, uh, also having metrics for healthy weight, cholesterol, blood pressure, and blood glucose with the avoidance of smoking. So the statement, though, also called for what was termed primordial prevention of cardiovascular disease and the prevention therein of risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So given the literature has demonstrated over and over again that adverse childhood experiences are associated with each of these categories of the life's essential eight, it would make sense that the public health priority should be in tackling adverse childhood experiences, and this would improve population-wide cardiovascular health through primordial prevention, whether it be through reducing adverse childhood experiences or the stress physiology that is associated with their exposure. And following on this line, Dr. Ortiz, I was recently reading a study that you led that focused on the role of adverse childhood experiences in changes in stress hormone levels over the life course and the potential for caregiver warmth and relationships to ameliorate that risk. Can you tell us a little bit more about that work? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you for highlighting it. So as we discussed earlier, early life stress that can come from adverse childhood experiences may be associated with physiological changes in the body. And this altered stress response may be associated with cardiometabolic consequences. This term in the literature may be referred to as toxic stress physiology, meaning that stressors or exposures could actually impact physiology, making it toxic stress. We found evidence of this toxic stress across the life course in a group of thousands of individuals followed over decades. We specifically observed that early life stress, some of which were actual adverse childhood experiences as described earlier, were associated with a higher level of cortisol, the stress hormone, when they woke up in the morning or referred to as wake up cortisol. 
Early life stress was also associated with a flattening of the cortisol curve, specifically in the morning, known as the cortisol awakening response or change from first time in the morning cortisol to about 30 or 45 minutes later. However, caregiver warmth was found to be associated with a greater rise in that cortisol awakening response or known as the slope when we measured it graphically. So in other words, not only could early life stress be associated with alterations in stress physiology that may be in the literature found to be associated with cardiometabolic risk, but exposure to caregivers that are supportive or nurturing may mitigate that physiology. We also found that social support might meaning general social support throughout the life course, even in adulthood, could attenuate these findings. So there is a potential to harness those healthy relationships at any time in life towards cardiometabolic health. And further investigation in general is needed to understand the concept of healthy relationships and how they buffer against life course stress. Wow, that sounds like, you know, healthy relationships really throughout the life course are really pivotal. I think that's an area of focus for all of us, irrespective of whether we're practitioners or not, having those healthy relationships. Dr. Ramirez, we've been talking a little bit about research. I want to bounce back to the clinical perspective here. Uh, Tell us about your work in providing care in communities to address adverse childhood experiences. Yeah, so a lot of my time is spent out in communities. And I think to Dr. Ortiz's point, you know, what we really try and promote and prioritize is first and foremost, preventing adverse childhood experiences altogether and trying to ameliorate the effects of the social determinants of health. In addition to addressing the risk, right, the other thing we can do is really promote what I mentioned before, which are those protective factors, Right, so I'll often think about risk as like rungs on a ladder. And with each adverse childhood experience or negative social determinant of health, we're getting higher and higher on that ladder, climbing toward those physical and mental health outcomes that we really don't want. On the other hand, protective factors act to bring us down on that ladder and return us to a healthier base. And thankfully, there are many protective and buffering factors, right? One of those being the caregiver warmth that Dr. Ortiz was mentioning from the study. You know, and research has demonstrated that the number one protective factor actually across most of our risk categories is meaningful relationships. So I I really appreciate that study, Dr. Ortiz. It just adds more to that, that, that literature base. You know, examples of other protective factors include things like nurturing and attachment, right? Knowledge of, of positive parenting practices, understanding child and youth development from, from that caregiver perspective, parental resilience, social connectedness, concrete supports for parents. And as Dr. Ortiz mentioned, even from the American Heart Association and some of their factors, right? Some other protective factors are as basic as adequate sleep, nutrition, physical movement, and exercise, which can go a long way to decreasing the impacts of toxic stress and also promoting wellness. So a lot of what we do in our system is really to get out and to promote the connections and to make sure that we're buffering and protecting because we can't always impact those risk factors, but we can promote protection. Thank you for that, Dr. Ramirez. And, you know, what's interesting when I hear you speak is that You treat patients clinically, but then you also do a lot of work in the community and thinking about these factors that are important for communities kind of to work on as well. And so my next question is really to that point. Can you give us an example that demonstrates the impact of empathy 
and advocating for communities to improve health and health equity. So in my role in the school health program, I actually get to spend a lot of time in schools and in our community. And I'm noticing an increase, right, in wanting to identify and categorize maybe children and families based on something like an ACE score, right, or, you know, that social determinant score, you know, because we tend to categorize a lot, right? You're at risk or you're not, you know, you meet this criteria or you don't. And of course, we've just spent a lot of time talking about how important it is to understand adverse childhood experiences and social drivers and determinants. But as I mentioned earlier, it's not meant to be interpreted in isolation. So in the community engagement and partnering that we do, um, we try to provide a lot of context around one, the need to understand that there is risk and that it's not equal. There's not an equitable impact, right, of the risk that happens. And that's when we talk about the social determinants and social drivers. And also, we want to continue to think about the whole person and how we promote health and wellness and well-being. Often in medicine and in social policies, we can approach individuals um, with an attitude of maybe, what's wrong with you? Why can't you make better choices? Why can't you get better? And especially when we're thinking about young people. I think it's helpful to reframe into more of an empathic or trauma-informed approach of what happened to you. Like with this conversation today, the what happened to you are the adverse childhood experiences and the social drivers of health factors. It's important to empower individuals and communities to understand concepts and to validate like these concepts around what their environment is creating and also validate that their day to day doesn't just feel harder when you're battling like social determinants that are working against you. It is harder down to the biological factors that Dr. Ortiz was mentioning. Right. So I talked about how risk is kind of like rungs on a ladder. And, and for a lot of our families, it can feel like swimming upstream against currents you can't see. You don't know we're there, right? And so in our school health primary care clinics, I'll often talk about stress and how it sends us into fight or flight mode, right? Which means that that cortisol keeps us fast and alert and awake, and it also touches every system in our body. And in small doses, that's helpful, right? But when the stress is related to things in our homes or our neighborhoods or over long periods of time or even across generations, it impacts our health and the systems that were mentioned earlier, right? Cardiovascular, liver, cognitive, gastrointestinal, you name it. And it can impact our behaviors without us having any control over or realizing it, right? And this is where that empowerment comes. And so in having those conversations, in helping families and youth feel empowered to understand that even though they're working hard, things don't feel easy, (laughs) this is how we start to advocate. As healthcare providers, we have the potential to be the protective, meaningful relationships that can help our patients and families understand and advocate for equity in their care. And I believe we have a responsibility to help our communities navigate the social drivers and empower and validate the experiences of individuals living with a high burden of SDOH stress. Empathy for our communities will definitely lead to changes in our systems and how we approach our patients. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Ramirez. You very eloquently detailed the importance of engaging really across clinics to communities and caring for individuals where they were. That was beautiful. Dr. Ortiz, let's go to you next. So speaking to that, could you talk about your work with ACEs Aware Initiative under the leadership of Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, the first Surgeon General of the state of California? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. 
I'd like to start by just saying, of course, I don't speak directly for Dr. Burke Harris or for the initiative, and I will direct our listeners once I describe it to some resources where they could learn uh, much more about this amazing work than I can provide. But for context, yes, Dr. Burke Harris was the first Surgeon General of the state of California, but she also had been for a very long time and continues to be an esteemed clinician, one of the first that recognized the importance of understanding and addressing and ultimately now thinking about treating the effects of adverse childhood experiences. And she went on to popularize the term through a very viral TED Talk, which was really impactful. I I encourage others to listen to it and a seminal book. But she also pioneered the ACEs Aware Initiative as a partnership between the Office of the Surgeon General and the Department of Healthcare Services in the state of California. The initiative was aimed at implementing primary care screening of adverse childhood experiences, but really for the purpose of addressing and treating them and promoting healing from these experiences through an adversity and trauma-informed lens. To help execute this work, they partnered with others, inclusive of Aurora Health Group, which I became a consultant to. For listeners to really learn more about this, they should go to acesaware.org, which now goes by another name, the UCAN Initiative or UCLA UCSF ACES Aware Family Resiliency Network. One can simply Google ACES Aware or UCAN and find it for ease. The initiative initially and continues to be proud to have trained numerous providers across the state of California on the topic of adverse childhood experiences. Although I know that many providers uh, have taken the courses that they offer across the country, which are available to others. They also provided grants to California-based organizations to try to move the needle in community as Dr. Amir's amazing work is doing, but you know, for others, especially in California, to respond to adverse childhood experiences as a public health crisis and really to integrate trauma-informed care approaches throughout community, among many other important aspects of this work. And so again, it's, it's currently housed within the University of California, um, and the work continues to be impressively propelled forward. But hopefully that gives listeners a little bit that they can go learn more about. And in there, Dr. Ortiz, you mentioned this term, trauma-informed approach or trauma-informed care. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. And the term trauma-informed has been used broadly, so uh, can mean slightly different things in different contexts. And often the fact that it incorporates the word trauma can be a little bit challenging for many to understand. But under the umbrella is included adverse childhood experiences, other experiences that in and of themselves are just experiences, but may be interpreted as traumatic by individuals or communities or families or other systems. And so trauma-informed care recognizes and responds to the signs, symptoms, and risks of trauma or adversity to better support health needs of patients who have experienced adverse childhood experiences or other aspects of stress, such as Dr. Ramirez referred to the social determinants or drivers of health, other pathways that could ignite that toxic stress physiology as we talked about earlier. So what is trauma-informed care from a framework standpoint? What does that mean concretely? Well, I like to use the four R's approach, which um, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, uh, has many 
publications about that can be read about. And this involves realize as the first R, realizing the widespread impact of trauma, which we spoke about earlier, that number that over 60% of the United States uh, population has been exposed to adverse childhood experiences. That's widespread. Recognizing the signs and symptoms of trauma in individuals, families, and communities. We spoke about that. Could even be cardiometabolic risk factors or disease. We can respond by fully integrating knowledge about trauma and adversity, but really importantly, also knowledge about the protective factors that Dr. Ramirez so importantly pointed out or that our study demonstrated, such as healthful relationships and weaving that into policies, procedures, and, and daily practices. And this should importantly involve training leadership, providers, and staff in all settings, not just healthcare, but really everywhere, about responding to patients, individuals, and communities with best practices that are trauma-informed. And then ultimately resisting the re-victimization or re-traumatization of individuals, families, communities by approaching, in this case in healthcare, patients who have experienced adversity or adverse child experiences, for example, uh, with a non-judgmental supportive framework also informed by our own position to understand that we can't always know the lived experiences of others. But importantly, this goes well beyond the R's and healthcare uh, specifically. There are principles that we can apply, which I'll just very briefly summarize. So those would be inclusive of establishing a physical and emotional safety for patients, for coworkers, for anyone in our community, to build trust between individuals in the work setting, providers, clinicians, researchers, patients, but also communities, to recognize the signs and symptoms as we talked about in physical and mental health, and promote patient-centered, individual-centered, community-centered, evidence-based care. We can ensure providers and patients are collaborative in our approaches. And in research, we do that in community-based ways, as you alluded to earlier, uh, Dr. Joseph. We can provide care that is sensitive to patients' racial, ethnic, cultural, historical, and gender identities and contexts. I think that about sums it up. Uh, There's quite a lot to trauma-informed approaches. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Ortiz, and I think definitely an area of learning for all of us um, as we provide care. Dr. Ortiz, you mentioned screening for adverse childhood experiences. Um, Could you speak more about this specifically? Um, Is this something that should be broadly implemented even outside of California? So I'd like to answer this question honestly, but intentionally. First, we must agree that the exposure to adversity or adverse childhood experiences or social uh, drivers is really not destiny, right? There, um, there are maybe exposures, but life course outcomes are not destined to happen because of them. At its root, any debate over screening is really because simply of differences of perspectives on how screening is or is not the approach to helping individuals, families, or communities have the greatest opportunity for life course health and wellness, really regardless of potential risk or increased risk of experiencing adverse childhood experiences. That said, currently, screening has not mounted enough evidence specifically 
to support or negate it to influence guideline-based practice. So obviously something that the state of California is pioneering. Uh, Again, I, I direct others to their resources as I don't speak for them directly, but continued work in the field like this and of others um, around adversity is imperative and research is really needed to support what evidence-based programs and practices should be implemented. While screening or not may not be standardized in clinical practice, um, measuring adverse childhood experiences or manifesting a score, if you will, for individuals may be important for research. Um, We certainly know that at a population level or we wouldn't have this conversation after the Folletti study in the 1990s. Um, Of note, though, there's emerging literature that supports that doing so, meaning quantifying adverse childhood experiences, whether for research or clinical practice, uh, really should be done with newer metrics that are health-focused rather than disease-focused and inclusive of resiliency factors or protective factors. Uh, For example, there are individuals or community-level guidelines for how we can measure resilience, um, as well as encouraging or measuring safe, stable, and nurturing relationships as discussed earlier. If screening is done, it should be done in that trauma-informed approach we discussed. It is crucial that listeners understand that research has been done at a population level. Let me say that again. Not all who have experienced adverse childhood experiences, which are many of us, are destined to experience poor health consequences, um, and rather the statistics we cite are population level. So that said, some feel screening for ACEs in clinical practice is helpful when it's geared at offering interventions or complemented um, with specific protective factor screening, rather than becoming used simply for data or labeling individuals. Such individuals consider ACEs screening a method for screening for toxic stress, the physiological burden on the body associated with that increased risk of disease, as referred to earlier, and feel that that could be treated with identification. Others fear that if it's universally implemented without proper screening standards or follow-up, it could risk that re-traumatization or labeling of individuals without clinical indication, particularly in populations in under-resourced communities or those experiencing marginalization. So I'll just round this all out by saying... While the topic of screening is still being debated, more work is needed at targeting interventions to both prevent adverse childhood experiences and prevent the consequences of adverse childhood experiences, as we discussed throughout today. Dr. Ramirez, so what are a couple of points that primary care providers with a busy practice should take away from our conversation? Sure. So my other hat outside of schools is integrated into primary care. So I have this conversation a lot. First of all, I hope we've made a case for why understanding and potentially screening for adverse childhood experiences is an important task. I mean, if we don't understand the root cause of the symptom and all we're doing is really putting a Band-Aid on an underlying problem, it doesn't get better, right? The underlying disease in my practice and community are significant social drivers of health that are creating years and generations of physiological changes. So until we can really understand our patients and their experiences, then we as providers are swimming upstream against the factors that wreak havoc despite our best attempts at providing great medical care, which again is only 10% of the health outcomes, right? Secondly, I think we need to consider how we identify and triage those with higher risk and fewer protective factors, right? You know, we've been we've sort of talking about that, you know, both of us in, in our responses. I know a lot is asked of primary care 
providers in brief visits. So thinking about how do we bring in meaningful integration with with support systems like mental health, social work, other that can address social drivers of health, right? If we're going to ask screen and ask the questions, it's also helpful to have an infrastructure to address what is uncovered. Otherwise, we're sitting with patients saying, man, this is really hard and there's really not a lot that we can do. I appreciate this conversation around screening because, again, I think while very well intentioned sometimes, if you don't have the full picture or you don't have the supports to be able to, to hand off to, that can be very frustrating um, from the provider side and also the family side, I'm sure. And so incorporating those trauma-informed principles of how you're asking, um, because we also don't want to accidentally re-traumatize or re-victimize in how we're doing the questioning. Um, so support and comfort in, in integrating this into practice is really, really important. And it might feel like a heavy lift at first, but down the line, there's a huge return on investment, and that's what we're finding. Thank you for that, Dr. Ramirez. So going back to Dr. Ortiz, are there resources to learn more about adverse childhood experiences and their mitigation? Absolutely. Um, We've referred to some already. I will point out a few more. So the American Academy of Pediatrics offers numerous resources and statements about and related to adverse childhood experiences, as well as their mitigation, primarily by supporting individual and community-wide efforts to enhance safe, stable, and nurturing relationships for children and throughout life. Uh, The concept that the American Academy of Pediatrics refers to as, quote, relational health. In addition to these resources, there are others, as previously mentioned, the ACEs Aware Initiative, uh, where many could learn about uh, what California is doing, especially in terms of screening, uh, since that's been a topic today. And though I'd be remiss not to mention, and again, cite, um, you know, that I I did work for the ACEs Aware Initiative and continue to work with many of their efforts um, through UCAN. Another rich resource would be directly from the Ohio chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, There's a flyer for providers that one can search for. Um, There's also childhood adversity, toxic stress, and the role of the pediatrician file that can be found online. So the Ohio chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics has some dedicated resources as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Ortiz. And Thank you also to Dr. Ramirez, both incredible experts in this area. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us here uh, in Ohio. We will be sure to post these resources with the podcast description. This brings us to the end of our time together. At the end here, really just want to say thank you. I mean, you could be doing a lot of other things with your time. I know there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the world, but to share this time with us is incredibly valuable for the primary care physicians around Ohio. Today, I learned how significant adverse childhood experiences are, not only alone, but also for cardiovascular health. And I appreciate knowing that there is a lot physicians can do, but that we have a lot to learn to play a positive role in the lives of individuals that are dealing with adverse childhood experiences. So Dr. Ortiz, thank you once again. Dr. Ramirez, thanks you once again. Thank you so much, Dr. Joseph and Cardio. Yeah, thanks. I really enjoyed today's conversation and getting to know both of you. And a special thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to Cardio Radio. This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org 
to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative.